Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you're here and happy you're listening. Well, if you hear that sound in the background, it's because I am driving and I've been listening to a book that I've mentioned several times on the program called um, Three Felonies a Day. And Three Felonies a Day was written some time ago. Uh, you can just tell by the way the author, is, which stories he's telling and so on and so forth. And um, man, it's just, it's really fascinating the way the law has changed over time. Um, most of the law that we have in the United States, uh, criminal law anyway, is, um, is a function of uh, states. And its history is that of the uh, British common law. And so it's pretty, it's pretty intuitive. You know, most people know what's against the law and what's not against the law. But when you get into the federal statutes, things get a little bit murky. And uh, this is because originally, according to the book, the laws, uh, the federal laws, had to be uh, explicitly passed by Congress. The statutes had to be passed by Congress. And somewhere around in the mid-70s, and there's, there's a story around this, and, and there's a reason this happened. Uh, I don't know all the details, so I'm not going to get into it. But essentially, we transferred this uh, statutory uh, requirement by Congress. We transferred to uh, administrative law or regulations and things like that. And this could have been with the founding of the EPA, for example. There's, there's a lot of the Department of Education was created uh, at that time and several things like that. So um, we, we kind of transitioned to this, this method where we promulgate rules uh, based on regulations and, and, and we no longer require Congress to actually tell uh, the citizenry what's against the law, what's against federal law. And as a result of this uh, migration, laws have become increasingly vague and broadly written. And so because that, because of that, um, anytime some law is vague um, and, and broadly written, it gives prosecutors a lot of, a lot of leeway to bring a case. And we see this today with Donald Trump. We've heard criticisms um, from legal scholars on the news. I think of Alan Dershowitz all, all the time. And Alan Dershowitz, by the way, is, is a liberal. I mean, he's been a liberal for his whole life. But he vehemently defends Trump and says that the government really has no basis for any of these indictments um, or any of the cases that they're bringing against him. Now, I think I've heard Dershowitz talk about the uh, 
documents case in, in a little bit different manner, um, specifically around these attorneys being persuaded to testify against him, um, which to me is un- inadmissible. You know, there's a there's a privilege there that you have with your attorney attorney while you're discussing strategy, and um, you know you got to remember at the time he was in he was in uh, negotiations with the government about what to turn over, when to turn it over, and all this other stuff, and. Presumably, he was negotiating with attorneys or talk, strategizing with attorneys about what he would turn over, when he would turn it over, uh, why don't we just ignore them, things like that. And so uh, this looks like obstruction, which they've also charged him with. So potentially he's got some legal jeopardy there. But uh, the, the basic thesis of three felonies a day is just the expansion of uh, the prosecutor's power. Um, and if you look at prosecutors, they're, they're not unlike anybody else, right, that's trying to cobble together a career. They have, uh, in some cases, they have political aspirations. They have uh, just legal career aspirations, right? I mean, a lot of lawyers go work in the DA's office or the U.S. Attorney's office before they go work in private practice or maybe work at a DC law firm or whatever. And so they're just they're just acting on incentives. But man, I gotta tell you, after hearing some of these stories, these guys are really well, I, you've heard me say this before, but anybody willing to use the power, the full force and power of the federal government, uh, via the legal system is, in my mind, somebody who's just evil. And a lot of these prosecutors in these stories are, are really just evil people. They're, they, they don't have a respect for the law. They really, they don't have this whole, uh, what is the ought versus shall or something like that. You know, what the law ought say and what the law, law shall say. They don't have that kind of compass built into their uh, to their thinking or to their uh, their principles, their their value system. You know, they're more concerned about winning uh, in you know in the administration uh, than than actually legitimately administering justice. And uh, one of the one of the uh, stories that he told in this, I thought was kind of interesting because. Um, it, it ties to Trump, basically. Um, and it's the uh, Jack Smith uh, during the, they're in the Tea Party movement. Uh, many of you might remember this. Um, the uh, Tea Party movement, uh, a lot of organizers were, were um, going to the government and saying, hey, we want to create a 501c3. We're going to create a Tea Party PAC or whatever. And uh, there was a New York Times article that was written, uh, and it was read. It was it was very negative about what the Tea Party was doing and how they were creating these these uh, uh, nonprofits to organize, which is perfectly legitimate. I mean, there's a lot of Democratic organizations that do the exact same thing. 
So it's not illegal or it's not improper or anything like that. But there was this article in the New York Times that was really negative about the whole thing. And, you know, if you recall, Nancy Pelosi was calling it an astroturf movement. You know, it wasn't a real grassroots movement. It was astroturf. And uh, anyway, a lot of these... uh, a lot of these 501c3s that were um, part of the Tea Party movement came under scrutiny uh, of the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney. And Jack Smith was at the as it was at the center of this deal. And essentially, after this New York Times article was written, Jack Smith had emailed his team and said, "Hey, is there any way we can criminalize this this activity?" And through some various circumstances, got Lois Lerner involved. Um, I guess she was over the department that was approving these things. By the way, I, I misspoke. This is not in three felonies a day, but it, it's in a, a, a Mark Levin uh, monologue from I think last Sunday. I just they're so similar. These these. Uh, the book, Three Felonies a Day, and then what Mark Levin was talking about the other night. So anyway, um, this New York Times article was kind of the predicate for Jack Smith to get engaged with these Tea Party 501c3s and was literally looking for ways to criminalize the activity. And to me, that just that speaks volumes about his political affiliation you know he's he's clearly uh, biased in his political affiliation this was back in 2010 so this is 13 years ago and uh, but this is typical of these prosecutors and a lot of this um, a lot of this uh, type of activity uh, I think and I'm they didn't really talk about this in the book, but they did talk about how Russia uh, or the Soviet Union had a history of, uh, under Stalin, uh, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And this is kind of the face that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice is kind of taking. They're, they're conveniently going after political enemies and um, making life difficult Uh, for people they don't like, essentially. And this is not, this is not new. I mean, I I thought kind of what was going on with Trump was unique, but this has been going on for quite some time. There's a, there was a story they told in the book about Bill Weld, and some of you may know who Bill Weld is. Uh, Most recently, he was in the public, uh, kind of the public eye when he, uh, ran for president uh, in in the last cycle in 2016 as Gary Johnson's running mate in the Libertarian Party. And this was a big controversy in the Libertarian Party, by the way. There were lots of Libertarians that were really bent over this whole thing. And essentially, they they let Bill Weld uh, become the candidate of the Libertarian Party because, or the vice presidential candidate, mainly because he had uh, ties to raising finances. And a lot of libertarians were angry about that because Bill Weld has such a sordid history of 
abuse of power. And there's a story in the book, the Three Felonies a Day book, where Bill Weld had uh, gone after the mayor of Boston. And you'll just have to listen to the story, but he essentially cobbled together a, uh, a bribery case or a money laundering case and an extortion case. And he tried to tie them together to try to get the mayor of Boston. The mayor of Boston had been elected like four times and was going for a fifth term. And Bill Weld had political aspirations like many of these U.S. attorneys do. And he was going after this guy, Frank White. And long story short, the, the judge split the two cases, which Bill Weld didn't want him to do. And uh, also there was a, one of the key witnesses was went to the defendant and essentially said, hey, look, I'll tell the truth and testify on your behalf if you pay me $200,000 or whatever. And the defendant kind of went away and said, let me think about it. And he went and told his attorney. And the attorney, you couldn't record conversations in, in Boston at the time. So the attorney planted a couple of people in the basement below the table and they took notes on the conversation. And long story short, they testified in the trial and the judge threw the whole case out. So Bill Weld had this miserable kind of failure trying to get dirt on the Boston mayor as a U.S. attorney. But clearly he was doing it for, in my mind anyway, uh, for political aspirations. He, he had political ambitions and was trying to make a name for himself. Um, something that was interesting, <coughs> excuse me, that they brought up was a 2007 study in the Federalist Society, the Federalist Society, that uh, in 2007, there were 4,450 criminal laws, federal criminal laws. And that's a, that's a lot, you know. I mean, these are, these are laws that have to do with uh, fraud and uh, accounting irregularities. A lot of them are finance laws and things like that. And this is just an explosion and I, I want to say like 20 years earlier, there was less than half that. And so there's just an explosion in, in the number of federal laws. And with the, with the quantity and the way the laws are broadly written, it just gives these U.S. attorneys a lot of leeway to bring charges if you become a target of the federal government. And, and you can just, I mean, it's perfect for someone like Trump comes along, you know, and you can... You can easily prosecute them for a whole bunch of things, really things that are not even known to be laws uh, by the average person. And it's just it's just easy to run afoul, you know, of all these laws. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so I just want to reemphasize that that the criminal laws were supposed to be enacted by Congress directly, and. Um, there's like a Supreme Court case on this and some other things, but they're just over time, it's been slowly whittled away and, and now that's no longer the practice. Occasionally, if someone's acquitted, the judge might say something to the effect that if, if Congress intended for this to be the, the spirit of the law, then Congress should say so plainly uh, by enacting a, uh, an act of Congress. So there's, 
occasionally, you know, people can win. But I'll tell you, the one of the biggest themes running through the whole book is this ability that these U.S. attorneys have to plea bargain. The whole plea bargain thing, it's, it's one of the major legal tactics they use. And is which, which is why, you know, if anybody from the federal government ever talks to you, the only words out of your mouth should be lawyer. I mean, don't even give them an opportunity to twist you up into a knot and accuse you of lying. Because this is one of the major uh, legal tactics that they have. All right, uh, let's see. So plea bargaining. Um, and the reason they do this, by the way, uh, I didn't mention this, is to they're, they're usually trying to target someone above you, either in your company or in government. They're not really maybe after you so much as they are uh, somebody above you that's like a bigger fish. And, but they'll use this plea bargaining to, to try to uh, persuade you to not just sing but compose, as Alan Dershowitz likes to say. In other words, make, make up a story, you know, <laughs> to avoid prosecution if that's what they really want. In fact, there's a lot of this going on. There's a lot of, instead of just telling the truth and telling on somebody above you, they're, they're actually creating falsehoods and telling on people above you. So this is a real problem with this plea bargaining deal. And, and the way they do this, the, the sentencing or the, the, the punishment for a lot of these crimes is, is really severe. Like um, most of them have carried uh, like a minimum sentence of five years. So if you're somebody, you know, who's not a criminal, generally speaking, and you're facing five years in prison, uh, you can just imagine that that's going to create a lot of, uh, of motivation to either tell on somebody because you know something or to just make something up to get out of it. Um, and, and along these lines, by the way, this is I thought this was an interesting story. Bribery for testimony uh, is illegal for the defense. It's, it's illegal, period. But they tell this story uh, about this case, and it was called Singletary. And, and there was a lot of details. This guy goes into a lot of details, so I'm not going to go into that level of detail. But essentially what happened is the this Singletary person and their attorney filed a motion to, uh, to throw out the testimony of one of the state's witnesses because they said they offered, they were claiming that the, the witness was offered uh, a bunch of bribes, essentially. And uh, the judge agreed and, and, and held up the motion. And the, the state quickly appealed to a higher court Department of Justice was running around like crazy, like, oh my gosh, we can't allow this to happen. And they ended up persuading an appeals court to essentially say that that the state was able to bribe witnesses, but defendants were not able to. Um, that was what Congress intended. So they, they were able to convince a court, an appeals court, that Congress actually intended, even though it doesn't say in plain language in the statute that you can't bribe witnesses, or that you can't, or that you can, that you can bribe uh, government witnesses, but you can't bribe uh, defendant witnesses. It actually just says you can't define, you can't bribe witnesses. Period. It doesn't make a distinction between defendants and uh, state witnesses. 
and yet they were able to convince this court that that it does say that, that that's what Congress actually intended. So it just goes to show you it doesn't even matter what's written in the law. The state can and does manipulate uh, the law constantly in their favor. And so this is a this is not a this is not something that we think of in the law. We think of the justice system as being just and being fair. And and you'll hear people say things like, it's not perfect, but it's the best we have. And, you know, I, I vehemently disagree with that. I don't think it's the best we have. We we've got a situation where um, it's it's routinely corrupted by the state and uh, you, you shouldn't be using that power against individuals uh, unless unless there's clearly a law that's been broken. And more importantly, in my opinion, there should be a victim. If there's no victim, then there's no there's no law broken. Um, this whole concept of uh, crimes against the state and stuff that's just that's that's not part of English common law and there's no real tradition of that. That's just something that the United States government has created. And not, not just the U.S. government, but governments all around the world. And it's a, it's a tool of tyranny. So, um, I don't know if y'all remember, if you've seen The Godfather or not, but in, in Godfather 1, the first Godfather, um, Johnny, who's supposed to be Frank Sinatra in real life, Johnny is this up-and-comer singer, you know, they said he's got a voice like olive oil and, and this kind of thing. He, he goes to The Godfather and he says, this, there's this film that I'm trying to get in and the producer, he's got a personal beef with me and he doesn't want to put me in the film and I'd be perfect for the film. And, you know, is there something you can do, Godfather, you know? And so, uh, um, Don Corleone sends uh, he sends uh, Tom Hagen out there. Tom Hagen is the attorney, the family attorney that uh, that is uh, adopted, right? He's not he's not blood, so they kind of treat him a little bit differently. But he is the family attorney, and he is loyal to the family. So he goes out there and he meets with this producer, and sure enough, the producer says, "Yeah, you know the." you know, Johnny would be perfect for the role and all this stuff. And he goes, well, why don't you give him a shot? You know, uh, uh, Vito Corleone would be personally, uh, grateful. And this producer just goes off and calls him, uh, I can't even think of the, the negative term they called Italian Americans at the time, but he calls him, you know, grease ball or whatever. And, and, uh, runs him out of there and says, get the hell out of here and you go tell your boss, you know, whatever. And he goes, and he doesn't eat, you know, this is like over dinner. And he says, are you going to finish your food? And he says, no, he goes, uh, Mr. Corleone is not one who, uh, wants to, uh, wait on bad news. So he gets up and leaves and it kind of cuts to this serene kind of picture, California sunrise, you know, and this beautiful state that this producer lives on. And, and uh, and the guy's kind of waking up. They show him in bed, and he's 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 alone in bed, but he's kind of waking up. And he wakes up next next to the head of a horse. And 
this is like one of his prize horses, right? This is like a, a race horse or something. Well, evidently, they cut the head off the horse and put it in bed with him. And uh, long story short, Johnny got his uh, audition and they, uh, uh, his career took off. And as you, as you know, Frank Sinatra was very successful, right? So, but this is these, uh, the, the Godfather's based on, supposedly based on true stories. Anyway, that's the, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. That's where that's from. And that's kind of the way these prosecutors operate. They, they, they make offers that, uh, that uh, these defendants can't refuse. You know, if you become a target, they just start wheeling and dealing to try to get you to turn state's evidence so they can get the real fish that they're after. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, I just made a note that none of this has to do with, you know, seeking truth or trying to find justice. It's just, um, it's just tyranny. I mean, that's all it is. There's, it's really that simple. The state has to control you. That's, that's the function of the state. And uh, this is the way they do it, under the guise of justice. Uh, let's see, I made a note here. Oh, according, and I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, there's, there's a guy he quotes in the, in the book that, uh, and he's a U.S. attorney, said that they used to get together and they had a game called Name That Celebrity. And the purpose of the game was somebody could name a celebrity and the other other people uh, would would kind of speculate as to how they would accuse the celebrity of violating the federal code and how would they how would they send them to to prison you know well how would you do it you know and well I would I would use the fraud statute or I would use this statute or whatever and so this is something they they said they used to do can you imagine these people just sitting around playing God with your life and but this is this is typical of the state they they don't there's almost like an us versus them kind of attitude they don't really see themselves as citizens like like you see yourself as a citizen like you're just trying to mind your own business you're just going through your day they don't see things that way they see kind of an us versus them situation and this is very very dangerous for people in the government to have this kind of attitude about their fellow citizens but this is the way they think about it they think they think oh well this is just what i need to do in order to further my career or this is just what i need to do they're guilty of something we just need to find out what it is that kind of thing all right well i'm going to wrap up the show it's, it's getting loud i'm on a section of road that's a little bit loud i'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show but uh, thank you for coming in i hope you enjoy that go read three felonies a day or listen to it on audio tape that's what i've been doing as i'm driving it's really good man it's it's a little bit dated most of the cases, the, the, the attorney's career <coughs> kind of started back in, oh, the late 60s. So a lot of his, a lot of his uh, stories uh, are kind of, you know, in the 70s and 80s. In fact, he said that in the mid-70s, things really started to change. You know, early on in his career, everything he, everything he defended people on were like drugs and uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, murder, things like that, real crimes. 
he said it wasn't really until the 80s, the early 80s, where he started to see uh, defendants walking through into his office needing his help. They were lawyers, accountants, doctors. I mean, just everyday people, but more like professionals, not not uh, not criminals. You know, not people that are murdering people or raping people or anything like that, but people that are just you know coming under the under the uh, scrutiny of the federal government. And uh, anyway, so that's that's a lot of a lot of his stuff is kind of dates back to the 80s and early 90s. He talks a little bit about the Bush administration and some of the shenanigans that took place in that Justice Department. Anyway, I, I highly recommend it. Um, I think you'd like it. I think it's very eye-opening, and I think it's it's the type of thing you need to be reading or learning about so that uh, you can kind of get a flavor for what, what your government's really up to and why you should be very, very skeptical of it. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Hope you enjoyed that. Come back tomorrow. Uh, actually, I may not do a show tomorrow because I'm driving and out of town and stuff, but if I can, I will. It'll be something along the same lines. But come back and listen. Uh, and if you do, I'll be here tomorrow to do it all over again. Peace. Peace.